Welcome to the Westminster Chapel podcast. For more information and to support our mission to London and beyond, please visit westminsterchapel.org.uk. The Bible reading is taken from um, Romans chapter 12. This is a chapter that we've been looking at um, over recent weeks, and I'm going to read the whole chapter. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If if it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour. Serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I just want to read the verse that we'll be looking at today again. So verse 14, bless those who 
who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. So should we just pray briefly? Lord, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, that it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we thank you, Lord, for this chapter in Romans that we've been looking at recently and for the wisdom that is there. And Lord, we just pray that um, your Holy Spirit will be with Sam as he comes to speak to us. Lord, we pray that you will speak through him, that he have a, may have a message from you. And may we have receptive hearts and minds as you speak to us your message. And Lord, that we might hear from you both individually and together as a body of believers in this place. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's a great privilege and frankly a great relief that we have <laughs> Sam here this morning. He's uh, train trouble, but uh, he's here and we rejoice in having you here this morning. Sam is uh, uh, part of the Open Doors organisation. This is a ministry that works um, and supports the persecuted church throughout the world. It's, some, it's an organisation that the chapel has had an association with for a, uh, a number of years. Uh, we support the ministry, and I know a lot of us individually uh, support the ministry as well. So the Open Doors provides various forms of practical support, financial, Bibles. It began with the uh, legendary Bible smuggler, uh, Brother Andrew, years ago, and that is, Bible work has continued. If you go on Wikipedia, there is an extraordinary story about how they... Uh, back in 1981, the steps they took to get a huge number of Bibles into China. It's worth, worth looking up. And so the, the ministry is essentially raising global awareness of uh, persecution to mobilize prayer, to support and, uh, and assist action amongst Christians throughout the world. So we welcome Sam and uh, look forward to receiving his message. Can we... Show our work. Thank you. Well, it's a joy to be here today. Uh, it was getting a little bit stressful on the train on the way down as we hit delay after delay, and I was kind of thinking, how fast can I run across London? Um, but we're here. Um, just before the summer, I had the privilege of um, having a lady. She's um, in her 80s now, staying with us as a family. Uh, my, my boys have called her Mrs. Yoda because she was about uh, five foot four and she kind of moved around and you know, um, didn't speak a lot of English but was just full of animated energy. And, um, and she was a lady who'd uh, grown up in North Korea and uh, she'd endured more than uh, five years in prison camps um, in North Korea. She'd lost her husband to persecution in a prison camp in North Korea. She'd lost her daughter also. Uh, the first slide should um, hopefully come up on here. And um, we had a chat one morning at, at breakfast and, and she asked whether I could take her to um, this little chapel in Wales uh, called Hanover Chapel in a place called Abergavenny. And uh, so I changed all of my plans for that Monday because it's not every day that you get somebody from North Korea who has endured um, an experience in a prison camp. And we, we drove down to this little chapel, Hanover Chapel in Abergavenny. And as we went through the, uh, the threshold of this church, she burst into tears 
uh, which isn't what I was expecting. She burst into tears. And the reason she burst into tears is that Hanover Chapel was the, uh, the home church of a guy called Robert Germain Thomas. And uh, Robert Germain Thomas, at the age of uh, 23, left um, the UK and he travelled to China. And, uh, and in China, he felt God calling him to do a journey up the, the Pyongyang River to Pyongyang, which is the capital of North Korea. Um, at that time, Korea wasn't separated into North and South. And uh, he basically took Bibles on this journey, and he stopped at various points along the river and gave Bibles um, to those who were part of, uh, of that nation. And ultimately, he faced persecution, Bibles were taken off him, and he was sent packing. Then in 1866, he felt again um, provoked that he needed to go and retrace his steps where he'd been before, a bit like Paul retraced his steps at places where he'd been persecuted in Bithynia and Pontus and other places in modern-day Turkey. And so he went back on this journey in 1866 with Bibles, and he stopped off at the places, and he distributed these Bibles to people. And, uh, and they got to one point, and the boat that he was on was um, attacked and set on fire, and he managed to escape to the shore. And it's very, very difficult to exactly understand the historicity of kind of stories, but he was effectively martyred on the, the shores of, of the Pyongyang River. And um, within some of the, the local kind of legend is that Bibles fell around him uh, as he was executed, and he even gave a Bible to the person that executed him. Um, some of those Bibles were picked up by members of the community. Uh, they were then asked to return those Bibles. But part of the local history of that community is that one of those Bibles, one of the men took home, and he wallpapered the inside of one of his rooms, and people came and they would kind of read scripture on the walls of his house. And many people um, trace their, the origins of their faith in North Korea to that. So as she walked over this threshold, she burst into tears because of gratitude for the gospel that had come in the heart and through the mouth and through the actions of a 23-year-old who had left the shores of the UK in order to take the gospel. And as we walked around um, uh, Hanover Chapel in Abergavenny, this uh, photo in the middle I noticed on the wall, which I was surprised to find. So Robert Germain Thomas uh, studied in London, and for five years he was a member of this church community, which I thought was quite cool. Um, you can say it's cool because you're part of this church community as well. So for five years, he was kind of schooled and founded and established in his faith. And then he went and took the gospel to China and to North Korea. And so just felt wanted to let you know that, that you have a legacy as a church in the life of Robert Germain Thomas. You have a legacy in the life of Christians in North Korea today who are suffering persecution. North Korea is the most challenging place uh, to be a Christian uh, on the earth at this moment in time. And it has been roughly that for about the last 20 years. So it's a great privilege to be speaking here today, recognizing the legacy of investment in global mission, recognizing the seeds of gospel transformation that have been sown here. In the context of, of persecution that Christians in North Korea endure. Romans, um, or the letter of, of Paul to the church in Rome, offers great encouragement and great inspiration to Christians. Romans 8, many of us know well, um, talks about um, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Can affliction, can distress, can persecution, can famine, can nakedness, can danger or sword? No, nothing 
can separate us from the love of God. And I could tell you many stories of Christians in Vietnam, Christians in, in North Korea, Christians in other parts of the world who Romans 8 has been an incredible encouragement to them in that moment. But Romans 12, which we've read out this morning, is also a tremendous encouragement. One, because it talks about the body of Christ, talks about the global body of Christ. And for Christians who are isolated for their faith, Having that sense that you are part of a global family, the worldwide family of God, is of immense comfort and support and encouragement in those moments when you're in isolation. A good friend of mine, Mujtaba from Iran, who I'm actually staying with tonight, he endured uh, three years of imprisonment because of him sharing his faith in his early 20s. And there were many uh, days where he spent up to 30 days at a time in solitary confinement, and he said, in those moments, there were moments where he suddenly became aware through the Spirit of God that he was a part of a family and that that global family were praying for him. And one of the biggest challenges we face as Christians in the West is that we begin to live our faith two-dimensionally rather than three-dimensionally. If we cannot see the impact of our prayers, we assume prayer doesn't work. But if you speak to Christians around the world in the midst of persecution, they'll absolutely guarantee to you that your prayers work, that your prayers are powerful, effective, and significant. So if there's nothing you take home from today, take that prayer home, take that thought home, that your prayers are powerful and effective, and they genuinely make a difference. Because as Brother Andrew says, our prayers can go where our feet cannot. And that's part of his legacy, and I'd love to leave with us today. But also in Romans 12, um, it reminds persecuted believers that they are not alone that they're united to a body. And in this context, Romans 12, 14 is read. So maybe just have your Bible um, open in that place. It's just such a beautiful passage of Scripture, isn't it? Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Blessing those who persecute you, it doesn't make sense, really, does it? Outside of the meta-narrative of grace, it doesn't make sense. Why would you bless those who persecute you? Outside of the meta-narrative of grace, it doesn't make sense. But God's grace, God's mercy, invites us to be citizens of a different reality, to live by a different economy, and to breathe a completely different atmosphere. And within the ecosystem of grace, we can afford even the persecution of others, because we're living according to a different value basis. We're living by a different playbook, a different criteria, which is why Jesus, even when he's on the cross, says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen being stoned, Father, do not hold this against them. Because the criteria, the ecosystem of grace, the economy of the kingdom of God, it translates us from a two-dimensional view of reality to a three-dimensional eternal reality within which we can afford things that our earthly humanity cannot afford we begin to see things differently. Within this ecosystem, we don't need to hold on to our rights or to hold on to our entitlements, but we can afford to release them and relinquish them to God. Such living is sacrificial. It's sacrificing self-sufficiency, self-determinism, and self-interest. It's a pragmatic example of what being a living sacrifice looks like. We started off Romans 12, verse 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercy of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, the context of present yourself as a living sacrifice, live sacrificially, 
You know, don't live by self-determinism, self-sufficiency, or self-centeredness. The reason that we live sacrificially is in view of God's mercy. It's not in view of an attempt to be different for the sake of being different. It's in view of God's mercy. In view of God's mercy, live in a different way. In view of God's mercy, live by the economy of the kingdom rather than the economy of the earth. And such a living sacrifice is what true worship is about. To live in this way is to honor God. To live in this way is to reveal that we are citizens of heaven. It reveals it to ourselves. John talks about, look at the way that you live as evidence that you are in him and he is in you. But also it witnesses to the world that we are citizens of heaven. That we are marked by a different identity, a different reality, a different future, a different hope, a different inheritance. If we don't live differently to the world, what message does our life preach? To live in this way is to be peacemakers according to an eternal peace. To live in this way is to be children of God. To live in this way is to be a representation of the character of our Heavenly Father. And our response to situations like persecution, it's a testimony to our faith. It's a testimony to our Savior. And it's a testimony to our salvation. If we think about Jesus in the early church, as he kind of kicks off um, his constitution of the kingdom, kingdom, his inaugural message in Matthew chapter 5, He lays out what it is to be part of the kingdom of God. And he spoke about persecution, and he spoke about our response to persecution. In the Beatitudes, he speaks about, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness' sake, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. What an incredible promise, what an incredible truth to lay out to people, that when you are persecuted for righteousness, for the character of Christ, for the likeness of God in your attitudes, your actions, your words, your way of being, in that moment you demonstrate that you are a citizen of heaven and the kingdom of heaven is your inheritance. What a profound truth that is saying. It's elevating Jesus' hearers to an understanding that no matter what they faced in their two-dimensional daily experience, that there's a wider ecosystem of grace that is going on within which they are inheritors of the kingdom. Now if Jesus said, blessed are the persecuted for they will inherit the kingdom of God. For me, that kind of makes me think, like, well I need to learn from the persecuted. I need to listen to those who are facing persecution because if they are the ones that inherit the kingdom of God, I want to inherit the kingdom of God. I want the, the rule and reign of God in my life. I want the presence of Jesus in my life. I want the fragrance of Jesus to be upon me and flowing from me in whatever environment I am. So if blessed are the persecuted, for they inherit the kingdom of God, what can we learn from the persecuted? In the Beatitudes, you'll know that the very first blessed group are the poor in spirit who will inherit the kingdom of God. Two groups inherit the kingdom of God. The poor in spirit, the first group, and the last group, the persecuted, inherit the kingdom. What's the common uniting denominator of those two groups? It's total dependency on God. They have nothing in self to rely on. They have no self-entitlement, self-sufficiency, no self-actualization to fall back on. They know that they are completely leaning forward into grace. They are dependent on grace. So if those are the words of Jesus, how do we live in a way that is not self-sufficient, self-reliant? How do we live in a way that is self-sacrificial, in view of God's mercy. Will the persecuted church have us something to teach us? 
In Matthew 5.43, Jesus goes on and says, You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. That would have been a challenging, almost impossible concept for people. And then Jesus goes even further in, in Matthew 5, 48. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Peter, in his first letter, he wrote to uh, believers in, in Asia Minor, facing persecution, and he encouraged them to Christ-likeness. They speak in a crisis who, when he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And Peter is encouraging the Christians that he's writing to, to encourage them to continue in the way of Jesus. Pattern yourself after the pattern of Jesus. How do you do that? By entrusting yourself. Entrusting yourself to the one who judges justly. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, he says, when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. Those are really easy principles, aren't they? And ideas to read and go, oh yeah, that's lovely. But when the rubber hits the road and you are facing a situation where you are slandered, where you are reviled, where you are persecuted, how do I respond in a Christ-centered way? Well, the encouragement is, when Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, is he knows that you and I can't do that. We can't be perfect. We cannot, in our humanity, Bless when persecuted. In the wake of the emperor um, Decius' persecution in AD 250, Cyprian, the bishop of Carthage in North Africa, he wrote this, Christians should do more than the pagan or the publican. They should demonstrate a divine-like clemency, loving even their enemies and praying for the salvation of their persecutors. That's great. Cyprian challenged his pastorate, asking them the question, shouldn't one who professes to be a son of God imitate the example of his father? That's a big question. The descendants of a good father should prove the imitation of his goodness. It's the same words that Jesus said, isn't it? Cyprian applies the simplicity of the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the New Testament writers to the context of the church facing persecution in AD 250. And in the early church, it was the faith and it was the grace of the persecuted that most powerfully conveyed the character of God and the glory of the good news as people saw Christians not retaliating but instead living for a greater glory. It caused them to consider the life of the Christians, and consider the faith of the Christians. We have a a lady over from uh, North Korea at the moment, and uh, she grew up in North Korea. She discovered a Bible uh, when she was 12, and you are um, indoctrinated within North Korean um, schools that if you find something like this in your home, your parents are in grave danger and grave risk, and you must tell your teachers so that somehow your parents may be saved. But instead, she went and spoke to her dad. And her dad explained that this was a Bible and that it contained the words of life and the words of God and led her to faith. And in that setting, they as a family were being spied on. And one day, one of the the men in the community um, asked uh, Kim's father, 
whether he would go and visit him in, in, on his deathbed. And so Kim's father went to visit this man on, on his deathbed. And he said to Kim's father, I've, I've been spying on you for 25 years. The government sent me to spy on you and report back to them. But he said, in the 25 years that I've been watching you and spying on you, I cannot believe that your God is bad. I've seen your kindness. I've seen your generosity. I've seen your compassion. I've seen your selflessness. I've seen how you respond to the aggression of others. Can you tell me about your God? And he led him to faith on his deathbed. There's much more to that story I could tell you. But it's a provocation, isn't it? Because it's the character of Christ-like transformation that speaks to people of our faith in God. It doesn't speak of our humanism, our human endeavor, our best abilities to manage and micromanage our discipline. It speaks of a supernatural grace that transforms us and reveals the Father through us. Cyprian went on and he said this, Beloved brethren, we are philosophers not in words but in deeds. We exhibit our wisdom not by our dress but by truth. We know virtues by their practice rather than through boasting of them. We do not speak great things but we live them. We do not speak great things but we live them. I love that. The provocation to live greatly to live as representations of our heavenly Father. That's why there's so much in the New Testament about rejoice when you face suffering of all kinds because it is an opportunity to live greatly, to demonstrate the greatness and the graciousness of God. If when provoked, we respond as anybody else would, what are we teaching about our Father in heaven? What are we teaching about Jesus? And when you find yourself responding naturally, that's an opportunity to surrender ourselves as a living sacrifice and say, Jesus, the heart disposition is not in me that I want to be. There's a few weeks ago and, and I was uh, driving somewhere and, and this person um, just cut me up really, really badly and then kind of gave me some unusual hand signs as if it was me who had kind of done something wrong. And I felt really angry and I, I put my foot on the accelerator to accelerate to the island to kind of give him a, a telling off. And then I suddenly felt conscious of, you are just behaving with the same spirit as you've just received. And it's so easy, isn't it, in life? So easy with work colleagues, with family, with the anger that is in the world around. There's another situation, slightly funny situation, where I've got, I've got three boys. And um, two of my boys were in the car. Uh, my older one has got a slightly comedic um, kind of elements to his character and we were in the car and there's lots of traffic going slowly alongside us and so he decided he'd pretend he was like on a horse in the front of our car going past these cars at the side trying to make people laugh and this one guy you know he was like looking really stern and then he saw Jude and this wry smile began to appear and then Jude carried on like this kind of horse and this guy then was like properly laughing so Jude's like this is great I'm bringing joy to somebody's life so we got to the next line so he did it again he looked over to his left and there was, there was five young guys in the car and they didn't look so pleased and we pulled away from the lights and, and pulled to the next bit of traffic and they got, went to get out of their car um, in order clearly to you know my son in the back said so, dad closed the car doors quickly and then the lights changed and we pulled away they saw us pull away and they pulled into the car in front of them crashed into the car in front of them. Uh, we didn't actually stick around just because the idea of five lads who were clearly animated and agitated in the part of Birmingham Rune didn't seem like a wise idea. But it just struck me 
There is so much anger in the world around us. How are we living as an antidote to that spirit? How in our own lives are we living in a different spirit? So the challenge of Cyprian is live differently. Such a response is supernatural. It reveals the nature of the work of the Spirit of God rather than the nature of our flesh or humanity. It reveals an identity that is anchored in an eternal security rather than earthly self-sufficiency. Such an action and such actions are impossible for man. The standard of invitation and expectation to be like our Heavenly Father and to be like Christ Jesus, they're impossible for us. But with the transforming of grace of God, it makes it possible. In Jesus' response to the rich young ruler who he challenges about his wealth, Jesus goes on and says that with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. That's the reality. Whatever the thing is which we're facing, in our humanity we face the limitations of what is possible, but in God all things are possible. Jesus tells a story in the parable, uh, Matthew records the parable of Jesus in, in Matthew 18 about the unforgiving servant who has not been transformed by the grace that he has received. And the implication is that a true encounter with grace and with mercy will be evidenced in the transformation of our attitudes and our actions to those around us. Jesus is pointing to it's as, as we are transformed by his grace that we become those who transform others. Around the world today, Christians are still facing persecution, and yet they're still motivated to respond to that context with Christ-like imitation. Anybody here birthdays in February or March? Would you just stand up for a moment? If your birthday's in February or March, just stand up. So statistically, who knew? A seventh of people in the UK's birthdays in February or March. So stand up. Um, and a seventh of the global church is living in contexts where they're facing um, extreme persecution for their faith. So that extreme persecution, persecution looks like um, losing your job because you're Christian. Um, as a child at school, being put to the back of the room so that you can't hear the teacher, so that you're educa- educationally diminished. It could look like the fact you're abducted for your faith. It could look like the fact that you are killed for your faith. Now just imagine those who are in the room standing up. If they came to church today with a story of the fact they'd lost their job this week because of their faith in Jesus, or they'd been beaten up this morning on the way to church, we would respond, wouldn't we? You would respond. There'd be an overflow of compassion. If somebody had lost their job, I'm sure there'd be a whip round to say, you know, we want to stand with you and we want to support you. But one-seventh of the global church there's 360 million Christians live in contexts where they are facing that persecution for their faith. Do sit down, thank you. A couple of years ago, I had the privilege of, of being in Iraq. And uh, Iraq um, is you know, one of the birthplaces of, of the early church. And talking to some of the church leaders there about persecution, they're like, we've never not known persecution. Persecution is just part of the DNA. The, the reality, the identity of life as a Christian. But while we were there, I, I met this uh, young guy called Yusuf, who was uh, 23. And he shared the story of, in 2015, that he lived in, in Mosul, uh, which is modern-day Nineveh. 
and, uh, and living in that community. One night, there was a phone call that ISIS, Islamic State, were uh, on the outskirts of the, the town, about 15 kilometers away. And so they had about 15 minutes to grab as much as they could and get out of town. They were living in a house that his uh, grandfather had built, and so they put whatever they could in the car, and they left, and they went uh, further north into Kurdistan. Fast forward to 2020, they went back then um, to their home to see what they could recover. Everything had been stolen out of their home. Only the bricks and mortar of their home existed. But by that time, they'd begun to form a new life in Kurdistan. Um, in the community, though, ISIS had, were no longer a, a controlling power. They were still present. They'd just kind of melded back into the background. This is just some of the chaos that exists in some of these nations in the Middle East. And so they decided that they were just going to have to sell their, their grandfather's house. And so they put it up for auction. And effectively, uh, there was a bit of a you know, plan in the community around to not pay the asking price for the property. And effectively, they got half the value of the property. Having been forced out of their home, having had all of their possessions taken, then effectively, those who were still living there, their previous neighbors, took the value of their home at half the price. And I felt like viscerally affected by that. I was like, that's, that's out of order. That is just so unfair. And I was like, how did you, you, know, how did you come to terms with that? And he said, oh, we, we forgave them. And I was like, okay. Uh, you know, but how did you feel about that? What, you know, how, what enabled you to forgive them? And he looked at me a bit like, well, Jesus told us to forgive, therefore we forgave. And I realized that the question said far more about me than it did about him. For him, his understanding was Jesus, as we read in Matthew 5, said, forgive those and bless those who persecute you. And he said, well, Jesus said it, therefore we do it. He said this, he said, because Christ, um, sorry, not that, because, uh, there it is, um, if you don't forgive, you can't live. If you don't forgive, you can't live. It's a 23-year-old, I thought that is so profound, so challenging. The next slide, there's another guy I, I met called um, Basil. And, uh, and Basil um, was living in, in Baghdad. And in uh, 2012, he had a, uh, a letter land on his doorstep at his home in, in Baghdad. He was a, a businessman in Baghdad. And um, he opened this letter when he got home. And in it was a bullet casing with a note saying, leave in 24 hours or your family dies. It was a letter from Al-Qaeda. He knew that this was not a, a letter to mess around with. So they packed up what they could, they left Baghdad, and they moved to uh, Mosul. And uh, he kind of settled his family, tried to re-establish some kind of form of business. And then again, in 2015, same time as, as Yusuf, ISIS appear on the edge of the village. So they have to then uproot everything again and move to northern Kurdistan. And again, talking to him and saying, how did you come to forgive? How did you come to forgive? And you can see his beaming face. When I went to Iraq, I anticipated experiencing just grief, really. But I was surprised to encounter joy. And that joy is supernatural grace at work. And he said, and I said, how did you forgive? He said, because Christ forgave me. Now, isn't that just the reenactment of that parable in Matthew 18. He knew how much more he had been forgiven. He knew how much more grace he had received. 
And because of that grace that transformed him, he was able to extend grace to others. The final story is a video from Ayuba from Nigeria. So just watch the screens for a moment. At night, we had the first gunshot. My father said we should all run. My siblings and I began to run for our lives. The next day, we went back home. Everywhere was silent. When we approached our house, I could see three bodies on the ground. I recognized my father by his clothing. I dropped to my knees by his side and prayed. I ran into the house to see if my grandmother was still alive. She was crying bitterly. They asked him if he was a Muslim or a Christian. They killed him when he replied Christian, she said. A few weeks after the attack, Boko Haram sent a list to our village, a list of people they were coming to kill. My family and I had to flee our home. Life hasn't been easy for us. After the attack, I was filled with anger and hatred, angry at God, and I had decided to avenge my father's death. Before coming here, I had decided to never forgive. It was all I could think about. But now, I have found peace, encouragement, and hope. I have learned to forgive and to leave everything at the feet of Jesus. And if I am to die like my father, so be it. Look on, it's, it's hard to process the supernatural grace that transforms bitterness into blessing. But we have a part to play in that process. Jesus and the writers of the New Testament teach us that we are one body. We read that earlier in, 1 Corinthians, in Romans 12.5. We who are many are one body in Christ. Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 says, If one member suffers, we all suffer. As part of one body, we need each other. We need each other because in and through each other, we encounter different expressions of Jesus. And in and through each other, the grace of God flows to strengthen us in our faith and our faithfulness as we seek to walk in the way of Jesus. We need to be connected and we need to be united with our family facing persecution. We need it because in them and through them, we see Jesus. We see the grace of God as we're at work, as we have heard this morning, through the power of forgiveness extended to persecutors. What a powerful testimony from Ayuba. That's the transforming grace of God. To bless those who persecute you is not natural. It's supernatural. It reveals the character of our Father and our identity as his children. Our persecuted family also need us. 
They need to know that they are not forgotten. They need us to stand with them in prayer because they know the powerful investment and impact of our prayers, even if sometimes we don't. They need us to speak out on their behalf, to highlight injustice, to bring into light the abuses of darkness. And they need us to stand with them in their practical needs, resourcing them to be able to live, resourcing them to access spiritual resources that enable them to be salt and light in their context. We heard in Ayuba's story the value of the trauma care centre. Such resources are made available through the partnership of believers around the world, standing with the most persecuted. And you heard in his story the difference that made, the transforming grace that was mediated through that setting. If you're not yet connected with your global family facing persecution, can I encourage you to do so for their sake and also for yours? And as an expression, a recognition of the fact that we are part of the body of Christ. We are one body, we are one church, we are one family through our Heavenly Father. And if we at Open Doors can resource that connection, then it be our privilege to serve you and to resource you to be active in your partnership with the most persecuted. We'll have some of these at the back. If you want to kind of connect, just fill out one of these cards or scan the QR code and we'll basically give you whatever stuff that is helpful for you to enable you to pray daily, weekly, monthly, and to share stories with you about what Christians are facing. Because in those stories, we have a part to play, but also you witness and see the transforming grace of God present, which also inspires and provokes us. Finally, how we inhabit our faith and how we exhibit our faith in times of crisis is critical to how faith is incarnated in us and how it's incarnated through us in the world. We have to get into the realities of these things. Our testimony is not that we speak great things, but that we live them. It's our lived response that evidences supernatural grace and points to Jesus rather than self. To bless those who persecute you, is the evidence of supernatural grace. It begins with forgiveness, and forgiveness begins at the cross. It's only in view of the mercy of God, through encounter with the mercy of God, that we can live in the ways of God. Jesus invites us to have our lives filtered through grace, the grace that we receive at the cross, and the grace that we then give. The cross filters our view of life through an eternal lens. And it's only through that lens that we can bless those who persecute us, that we can bless and not curse. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Sermon Audio from Westminster Chapel. 
If you'd like to partner with us in making disciples and sharing the gospel, please consider making a one-off or regular donation. Visit westminsterchapel.org.uk forward slash giving to find out how.